0: You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. So here we are for the Dietetic Researcher series. We'll be joined by the leading nutrition and dietetics academics some of which are internationally recognized we'll discuss their area of research the challenges they have had to overcome as well as the steps that you can take to achieve similar success Hello to all of our listeners, and welcome to another great episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast, brought to you by the A2 Milk Company. I'm your host, Kate Agnew, and I'm a student dietitian at the University of Queensland. Joining me today is Associate Professor Ben Desbro. Before his academic life, Ben worked as a clinical dietitian at the Wesley Hospital in Brisbane for eight years. Here, he focused on oncology, stem cell transplantation, and hemodialysis. In 1999, Ben was awarded the first Nestle Fellowship in Sports Nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. Since this time, Ben has also worked for the British Olympic team, the Australian Institute of Sport Cricket Centre of Excellence in Brisbane, as well as completing a PhD in Sports Nutrition. Ben's research expertise includes applied sports and clinical nutrition research, the effect of nutrition and ergogenic aids on performance, and foodborne drug research, specifically caffeine and alcohol. Ben is currently the Nutrition Unit Leader within the Research Center for Health Practice Innovation, which is part of the Menzies Health Institute. Welcome to the show, Ben, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Kate. It's really great to have you here, and I've got lots of burning questions to ask you, so I'm pretty excited. I thought maybe we could start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and one interesting fact about yourself.
1: Uh, yep, so um, I'm uh, I was a rare breed many moons ago of of being a person who came from exercise um, science or human movement studies. I did a degree at uh, the University of Queensland and then did dietetics at QUT, uh, which had a postgraduate course um, way back in the sort of early to mid '90s when I uh, when I went through and then. From there, um, my interest in sort of sport and exercise nutrition was sort of consolidated by some additional research and some other experiences. I had a fellowship at the Institute of Sport down in Canberra for a brief period of time, and and then ended up doing a PhD in sort of sport and exercise nutrition. So um, it was a not a not a sort of plan that I set out when I was young, but sort of followed one path and then it led me to the next uh, next path and so on and so forth. Um, as far as interesting facts, um, a couple of years ago, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with a, a couple of my mates, uh, which was a fantastic experience and, and something that I don't talk about that often. But it was uh, fantastic to spend um, some time with some really close friends of mine on the on the side side of a mountain, talking all things from um, nutrition to life and then back to nutrition again. So. Um, Uh, if uh, anyone's got any interest. I'm always happy to share sort of tips and insights as to uh, going to um, Tanzania and and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro.
0: Amazing. Did you do any um, altitude training for that?
1: Uh, No, I I didn't. Um, The highest I've been was uh, Mount Kutha doing some uh, bushwalks, but uh, nowhere near the altitude of uh, the trek itself. We, We did a Uh, an eight-day trek, which allowed us some acclimatisation because the first night you spend it just over 3,000 metres and then you sort of go up and down a little bit in the preceding days before going to the summit. So they do allow you some acclimatisation, but um, still it's it's relatively acute um, and the top is just under 6,000 metres. So um, the risk of altitude sickness is is, um, quite... Well, it's very prevalent um, and so... Uh, the acute um acclimatization doesn't necessarily always guarantee that you're not going to have some problems. And I had a few problems, but um, got to the top. So that was uh, that was the main thing.
0: Oh, congratulations. A wonderful mm-hmm. achievement. Um, I must say, I am actually from South Africa, but I haven't oh, okay. done, I haven't climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Hopefully one day though.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's fantastic. So I'd only encourage you to, if you're into that type of um, activity, to, to give it a go at some point.
0: Would you say it's all in the mind as well?
1: Yeah, look, um, it's one one of the great things about Kilimanjaro is that it's a non-technical mountain. So it really just does come back to the route that you potentially take. There are a number of routes to the peak and, and the time frame in which you're trying to do it. Um, and when we were on the mountain, we saw people um, relatively young, right up uh, to people in their uh, late 70s, um, early 80s climbing the mountain. So it is um, something that it can be achieved across the sort of range of people's lifespan. Obviously, it requires a certain amount of sort of training and preparation, but um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a fantastic thing to go and do. And if you can do it also with some friends or, or um, you know colleagues, it's you know it's a, it's a really is a, a fantastic life experience.
0: Excellent. That's amazing. So I've given the listeners a quick snapshot of your career journey so far, but I'm dying to hear a little bit more about it. So could you elaborate on each of your roles, maybe the main highlights?
1: Yep. Um, I was very fortunate when I first graduated from dietetics um, to land a job at the Wesley Hospital. Um, And I worked as a clinician there for in total about eight and a half, almost nine years. Um, and the areas that I predominantly worked in were um, oncology, hemodialysis, and they opened up a, a stem cell transplant unit while I was there for uh, stem cell transplant patients or high-dose chemotherapy patients. So I, I spent uh, most of my sort of early dietetic career um, providing sort of individual case management um In that environment Uh, and it was a fantastic environment very progressive hospital and and I also during that time did a little bit of my own private work I set up a private sort of nutrition consultancy business which I used to run just one day a week and um, and that was just to do things that were sort of non-hospital based work Um, after about seven or so years I um, applied for a couple of different jobs. One was a a corporate job um, with um, a multinational food company and I also concurrently applied for a job in Canberra um, as a a fellow in sports nutrition and uh, to sort of try and develop and consolidate that area of of my dietetic interest. And um, I guess I, I was at the point in my career where I was... I was at a sort of turning point and, and then sort of was looking at a number of different options and, and got offered both jobs but um, took the Sports Nutrition um, Fellowship and, and then from there um, came back to Brisbane after just over 12 months, um, Did uh, continued to work at the, the Wesley briefly for about another 12 months while I did a, a master's degree um, via distance education through Deakin Uni in Melbourne uh, and then got a job uh, at Griffith on the Gold Coast Um, teaching clinical dietetics, um, but also with the proviso that I undertook a PhD because I didn't have a PhD, but I'd done a a research component as part of my master's through deacon. So I was eligible to commence a PhD straight away. And part of my job, um, uh, my position description was that I needed to complete a PhD. I was on probation under those uh, conditions. So I did a PhD part-time Uh, through Griffith um, started there in 2002 and and been there ever since so I've been you know reasonably sort of stable in terms of my employment I suppose but one of the things that I've had the opportunity to do is do many different things within um, the institutions that I've worked so that's something that's sort of kept me happy I suppose during those periods of time.
0: Yeah, that's great. And that um, that leads me on to my next question. I wanted to hear a little bit more about your research because it sounds fascinating, particularly your work with caffeine and beer, not to mention the hangover safe beer. Interested to hear about why you chose this area of
1: research. Yep. Um, so my research, uh, and it doesn't really matter what the, the, the topic is so much, um, what's really driven my research agenda is to answer questions that I thought really could translate well to um, either individuals or communities in, in which I've sort of worked. Um, we originally got into, I or originally got into caffeine research when I was in Canberra at the Institute of Sport. Um, at the time, the World Anti-Doping Agency had just removed caffeine from its prohibited substances list. And so um, it became of greater interest to athletes, uh, the effect of caffeine on performance And concurrently, there was some news um, that had caused a bit of um, uh, difficulty in sporting environments of leading Australian athletes taking caffeine before sport and whether that was perceived as being within the spirit of sport. So. National sort of sporting academies and institutes weren't keen on doing research or prescribing caffeine to athletes on the basis that they were government funded scholarships and that um, from a political perspective, it was seen to be questionable. So there was just an opportunity. Opportunity, um, to do more research from an from a athlete interest perspective um, and also um, at a university you've got a bit more flexibility and freedom to operate independently. So um, those things combined and, and a number of unanswered questions allowed us to really explore caffeine in more detail and we, and we looked at it right from a consumer perspective. So how much caffeine is in coffee through to if you put guys on a bike and you give them... Uh, you give them cola or you give them coffee or you give them pure caffeine. What influence does that have on their performance in controlled sort of environments? Um, but with all of the research that we've done and whether that be in caffeine or alcohol, I've always tried to do it where there's at least one component of the research which has got that practical element. And, and that's really coming from being exposed to you know, some really fantastic nutrition researchers who've had those elements to their studies and so you learn from other people. It's basically uh, copied or, or um, you know, replicated from, from other people's good ideas.
0: That's it. And I suppose you're just building on the evidence. Obviously not a lot of evidence already there. So it sounds like you took a bit of a chance.
1: Well, one of the things is you develop momentum in an area. So, you know, once you get known for doing research in in one area, it's easier to do more research in that area because you become sort of pigeonholed, if you like, that that's something that you're good at. So for us, for instance, uh, with our original studies on caffeine, we developed a technique to measure plasma caffeine um, so that we knew that when we're giving caffeine that it was actually getting into people's bloodstreams and we could monitor their rate of appearance and peak plasma caffeine levels. And so we use a chromatographic method method for that. And so people knew that we that we had the capacity to do that and and it takes a little while to work up a method like that. So other researchers would then come to us and say, you know, do you want to collaborate and, and you know, help us with our caffeine research and we look at their study designs and things like that. So it's just one of those things that, you know, if you do something well the first time and you develop expertise in that area and you develop a good reputation, then people are more likely to come and seek your support and assistance for their work as well. And then all of a sudden you, you get to a situation where you're capable of, of doing a heck of a lot more work than you would be if you were just working in your own lab by yourself.
0: That's very interesting. I've actually had a bit of experience with um, LCMS and uh, mm-hmm. yep, the researchers who were doing it Prior to me coming in, I think he, he spent about seven years optimising the method. <laughs> and yeah, my yeah. sort of short year working on it, I can completely resonate with that. It takes a long time.
1: Don't, don't go and reinvent the wheel. <laughs> you know, you, what you want to do is you want to answer your question. You don't necessarily want to answer a question that someone else has already stumbled over and that you have to go back and sort of recheck their work. If they've got something that's up and running, utilize that to your advantage but obviously you need to create new knowledge in the area that you're interested in so you know it's a it's very much an approach that you're you're as you've mentioned you're building on research Um, you don't have to necessarily do everything from the ground up yourself but at the same time I think any good researcher you want to have an you know thorough understanding of every step in the in the process even if you haven't necessarily been Intimately involved in developing every step in the process. Yeah, great
0: point. So I know you uh, appeared on the Today Show with Kasper Novik to talk about this research. I think it was earlier in two thousand fifteen. I was just wondering if you could comment on what that was like.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I actually know Carl. We went to school together, so it was uh, it, it was a bit bizarre, really, because it's like talking to a you know an old mate, but it just happens that you have got a TV camera there. We 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 got involved in a little bit more media because. We've been involved in alcohol research or in particular beer research for a number of years now. Um, We've published a a few studies, but um, we've probably been working in that area for about 10 years. But we've kept some of the studies that we've done in um, commercial and confidence sort of um, areas until we've sort of worked out what direction to take things. Um, I originally got interested in beer because uh, from a rehydration perspective, um, when you look at the the science of rehydration the first thing you, you typically have to control when you know looking at the effect of sodium or the effect of carbohydrate on rehydration is you have to control the, the beverage volume so you know these studies that were published um in a number of different labs across the world all would typically control volume consumed because the moment you consume a larger volume of something you're more likely to see some of that fluid retained um and then you can look at you know whether a large amount of sodium, or a small amount of sodium, or a large amount of carbohydrate, whatever you might be looking at, is, acu- is actually having effect on rehydration. Now, if you go back to volume, um, to me, just observing people, the the one drink that people seem to be able to drink huge volumes of, particularly after exercise or exertion, was beer. So I, I immediately just became interested in it, um, just from you know going to the local uni bar or um, you know the local sort of sporting um, club where you see a lot of people who are interested in sport or or having participated in sport um, consuming large volumes of beer um, in that sort of post-exertional period so I started to become interested as to whether you could manipulate beer to become a more effective rehydration solution because there's something about it that allows people to um, you know, drink large volumes without a, you know, a real sort of flavor fatigue element that you might get with some other beverages. And so that to me was a, you know, a unique property.
0: So when you appeared on the Today Show, I think you were still sort of in the, I'm not sure whether it's the development stage or whatnot, but have you made any advancements in the research since then?
1: Yeah, so we we, we appeared on the Today Show because we were doing a survey trying to find out people's attitudes and and you know, what their motivations were for purchasing beer within the context of of health. So if people were interested in both their health, but they were regular beer drinkers, we wanted to find out some of their attitudes and beliefs around the products that they bought and why they purchased them and what sorts of claims wouldn't resonate with individual beer drinkers. So I guess we're trying to look at beer from the perspective of, of not only the physiological response to different nutrient sort of profile manipulations, but also what, it, what do beer drinkers think? You know, how, how do they behave when they go to the shops? Where do they buy their beer from? What are the what are the um, things that they're interested in, uh, both in relation to beer itself, but also their health, to try and understand, well, how, how might we be able to communicate or what other factors within beer might we be interested in looking at in order to link... Um, that sort of consumer behavior back to you know products that we might develop. So we, we've, we, we've got um, um, both a sort of product development arm to that research but also a sort of a, a consumer marketing arm to that research. I think one of the things that I've become acutely aware of is that you know I, I think about food all the time it's you know obviously part of my work but it's it's you know you've got to eat yourself and drink yourself so and when you're constantly thinking about foods and thinking about how people eat, you move further and further away from what the average person is is thinking with regards to food. So, you know, for me, it's very important to, again, go back to the market and sort of have a, uh, you know, I guess a, uh, a refresh as to what people are thinking, you know, because what I'm thinking is becoming increasingly warped each year that I constantly think about these things. So... And I think that's a useful, you know, that, that I always had that as a dietitian as well is to sort of think, well, the more I was thinking about food, whether I was dealing with a sick patient in hospital or I'm dealing with a, a student dietitian or, or whoever it might be, is that, you know, your, your perspective, the more you do this job, potentially becomes more unusual. And so it's important to maintain that sort of reality or connectedness with um, you know, the, the way non-dietitians think about food.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Ben, I'm just wondering what a typical day looks like for you, or does it vary?
1: No, it, it does vary. I mean, um, it, it sort of largely varies. So as an academic, you normally have sort of three major components to your work. So uh, most, I, I'm on a what they call a balanced profile as standard academic, which is a, a teaching component, a, a research component, and, a, and what they call a service component. And so depending on whether I've got a a sort of teaching day, that that could look very different to a research day, um, to a a day where I'm doing sort of other service-related activities. So for instance, if we've got a a, a trial on, um, many of our trials will start early in the morning. So it might be that you have to get into the lab um, very early in the morning. Um, More fortunately these days, I can become (laughs) a little bit longer uh, as far as my sleep-ins are concerned because I normally have students who are in there far earlier than I am. And so so um, I guess one of the things that has happened over the years is that I've become less, um, you know, I guess personally responsible for making sure things like tubes are labelled and, you know, all of the equipment's ready to go. When a participant comes in, you know, I tend to come in now to the lab to take blood off someone or to um, oversee equipment or make sure things are calibrated or, you know, maybe process some blood or something like that, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily the person who's responsible for running the trial. I'm responsible for maybe the overall question and, and doing some of the higher order things, but I don't have to get there at, you know, four o'clock, four thirty in the morning and make sure everything's up and running, which is, um, um, I've, I've, I've done enough of those mornings to know what that's like, and and know that it's not sustainable in the long term. So. That's
0: good. So you're not teaching students how to use pipettes at the stage. <laughs> you move past. Hopefully, that. they know how
1: to use a pipette by the time they get to me. We may have to teach them how to take blood or give them a hand to take blood and things like that, or process blood. But that's that's fine, and that's you know that's part of the um, training, research training. So and it's something I enjoy doing. And um, I know a lot of other academics that are sort of uh, have had sort of similar careers to where mine's at at the moment, who, who never step foot in a lab anymore. You know, they're just basically collecting data from their students and then, you know, helping them write manuscripts. Whereas I, I still like to go into the lab and, and, you know, be there for some of the data collection and, and make sure that things are sort of being run the way I'd like them to be run. And, and ha- you just have a greater level of, of confidence in the data that, you know, things have been done as per the methods, the way they've been described and, and that you've had some... You know, you've had some contact with each stage of the process.
0: Excellent point. Having been in a lab myself, I completely see why you why you would say that.
1: I've always sort of taken the attitude that every time I go into the lab, I'm going to learn something. And so, right. if if you're going into the lab thinking, well, you know, I know how everything works, and and there's no problems, you know, um, like that, uh, to me, then you're missing the potential to continue to learn. And and, and even if you're learning about some of the data and you know, it's the subtle things, you know, how certain questions are asked or, um, you know, the order of the way certain data is collected, it can influence the certainty that you have with regards to the numbers. So if the numbers don't look the way you might have anticipated, is it partially down to your method or is it partially, you know, down to the fact that you actually haven't been able to see an effect or maybe the effect was different than you anticipated? So it just gives you a better feel for what you're dealing with, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Great point. Um, so on that note, did you have any challenges during your career so far that you had to overcome and maybe how did you overcome them?
1: Um, look, not not um, sort of huge challenges, I wouldn't say. I think I've been fairly fortunate in the fact that um, I sort of come from an environment where uh, I was the first in my family to go to university. Um, I come from a family that's... Um, you know, my dad had his own business. He was a, he was a tradesperson. My other um, brother, I got two other brothers. They're they're both tradespeople as well. You know, I, my view is that in comparison to to other people in the workforce, um, working at the university, if you can apply yourself and you and you go in with the right attitude, it's a very fortunate life to have. Um, and so, um, in comparison to other 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 people's challenges, I would say mine have been fairly minor. Um, but I've taken the right attitude in, into that work environment and, and, and so I think that's served me very well is, you know, you, you take in, into your work this philosophy that it is a privilege to come to the university and work, you know, I get, I get paid. Uh, you know, consistently, and it's a, it's a, you've got a st- stable, relatively stable employer, and uh, you know you're not physically hurting yourself. Well, s- some days you are, but you know, mostly me- of a mental <laughs> nature. You know, you're not um, you're not carrying heavy loads a lot of the time or anything like that. So you know, it, it is largely sort of mentally um, challenging, um, but uh, that that and that puts you in a fairly sort of privileged environment. So you know, I, I guess I take that philosophy into the fact that. You know, work hard and, and but create a sort of positive environment, and and, uh, and and that's the least you can do when you when you work in an environment like that.
0: So I'm just wondering, maybe you could tell us a bit about your mentors that you had during your career so far, and some of the key learnings that you've received from them.
1: I've been very very fortunate in the fact that um, some of the people that I've worked for have been um, you know fantastic people to help sort of develop my career. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the first job I had was at the Wesley Hospital, and I was employed by a Lady. Her name was Marie Sardi, and Marie was extremely entrepreneurial, and um, she was um, like no other dietitian I'd ever met before. And, and that was really great for me because I felt as though I was probably at a turning point in my career, very early in my dietetics career, and that you know maybe that that wasn't the pathway for me I'm going to work for. Um, uh, Marie and also Judy Bauer, who was the department at the time was was really great at that early stage of my career so those guys certainly uh, definitely helped um, shape my early direction um, and then I was extraordinarily fortunate to get a fellowship in Canberra at the Institute of Sport and and at that time um, Louise Burke and Greg Cox um, I spent a huge amount of time with both of those two people and, and, and both of them have continued to not only mentor me, but provide me with you know opportunities that I just would never have had, and and role model um, dietetics, nutrition, um, and research at, at a standard that you know is really world standard. It's it's not just you know the best in Australia. It's um, I've I've been to uh, been fortunate enough to sort of travel to a number of countries with with my work and the work that they, they do down in Canberra and, and other places that sort of branch out from from the institute. I, is really, you know, equal to um, you know anything else I've ever seen internationally. So to have contact with both of those individuals again at a relatively sort of formative stage in my career was was great. And and what I, what I really found was that from there um, it was very difficult to go to go backwards. So from a you know from a research um, process perspective the standard was so high that you couldn't, well, I didn't feel as I could go away from that environment and do sort of substandard work. I sort of just tried to emulate that as best as I could with the facilities and equipment and and, and knowledge that I had. And I think having that early on in my career has been um, pivotal because uh, those skills are very, very difficult to learn later on.
0: So you've talked a lot about, I guess, the Positive aspects of your role. I'm just wondering if there's any particular aspect that's that you find most rewarding or that you most enjoy.
1: I guess with time, what I've probably learnt is more rewarding to me is actually seeing some of my students develop. And so I've had I've had four students now um, complete PhDs as their as their primary supervisor, and I've seen each of those individuals um, really go from um, research, and each of them. Uh, all bar one of those was uh, went through dietetics with me as well so you know they came into um the master's program and so you, you take them through their dietetics training and then i've taken them on through a phd as well and so you, you get to know these people over you know five to ten years of their life and and they're relatively young and and now i I see those individuals and, and to me that's been the thing that I get the most reward from is seeing the development in, in students that you spend time with and, and you really see what they're capable of. And from our legacy point of view, I think that's really, you know, it's fantastic to, you know, I've now got, for instance, a couple of students who work full-time in research jobs. One's funded nationally through a um, the National Health and Medical Research Council. Um, I've got an, an, another PhD student who, who's um, got a, I had a couple of postdoctoral um, jobs in the in the United States. Um, Chris Irwin, who I work with, he's he's one of my former PhD students, so he's got a full time academic job uh, at Griffiths with me. So you know, and and these guys really sort of started you know pre dietetics. So it's it's that's the thing I find most rewarding.
0: Great. And do you ever feel like you have to give them some advice to keep them striving for excellence in their work?
1: Yeah. Look, you, you do. And I guess um, I sort of see my role um, as a supervisor with those guys is to probably um, you know keep them on on the path. So sometimes that's a, a kind word. Sometimes that's no words. And sometimes um, that's some some fairly critical words, depending on where that student is at. With the ultimate goal being that you know, you want them to be world standard at the end of their PhD. So I say to my students, usually in one of the first couple of meetings that I have with them, that I want their knowledge in this area to within six months have far superseded my own. And that at the end of their PhD, they should be able to sit around a table with the six or 10 greatest minds on the planet in their area and have a, you know, a meaningful, intelligent conversation And so that's, that's where you're aspiring to go at the end of your PhD and it's, and it's your supervisor's job not to get you to that point, but to keep you on the path where you're developing at that sort of, at that sort of rate. So, um, and as I said, sometimes you've got to, you know, really judge where a person's at as to their trajectory heading towards that ultimate goal. And sometimes that can be um, difficult and, 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 and other times it's. It's it's not at all, but, you know, that's uh, part of that sort of um, supervisory role that you have.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I really hope our listeners can get as much from that as I have.
1: I mean, yeah, the, yeah I mean, the other thing that I think is key is that, you know, you really do want to have, you you do want to be enjoying yourself. Like if you're not, if you're not, if you're not creating a positive, enjoyable environment, you're not going to get the best out of people. So whilst I said, sometimes you, you do have to be critical of people, if they recognize that that's ultimately for their betterment well, and, their, 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 and their benefit then, then they're far more likely to take that on board whereas if you just you know if, if, if your only role is to provide criticism the entire way um, then, then some people aren't going to be nurtured under that environment it's going to work for some people but it's not going to work for others so for me it's a case of we'll create a positive environment for people to come and work and then if you have to have some difficult conversations they can recognize where that's coming from um, and and to me, that's 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 a key to our working environment is to is to create an environment where people feel as though everyone makes a valued contribution and everyone's everyone's welcome and er- everyone's uh, equal. Um, so that you know, if if difficulties are had, that you know that's a sort of shared experience.
0: That's great. Um, I have heard from a few people that university and also doing your PhD are the best years of your life.
1: Yeah. I didn't set out when I started my first year at university to become an associate professor at a university and never work anywhere else. I, I I basically work in an environment that I enjoy, and it just so happens that I just continue to take steps that I enjoyed, and and this is where I've landed. So, you know, if there's listeners out there who sort of think, well, I'm, I'm not sure where I want to be in five or, or ten or fifteen years, well, neither did I. Um, it's just that I, I found things that I was passionate about and and just threw myself at it. So that's that's what I encourage you. listeners to do also and that might be outside the um university environment and it might be outside of dietetics whatever it might be just have that enthusiasm for what you do and, and i think you you can go a long way if you if you take that passion
0: yeah that's it being passionate is really important and excellent advice as well that you've um that you gave there so thank you so much i was just wondering what you think the opportunities for dietitians are in the next decade
1: look i think um you know, it appears that what can be achieved in a decade um, at this point is, is is far more than what could be achieved in previous decades. So, I wouldn't say that I've got a, a completely clear um, crystal ball as to as to what dietitians will be doing. Um, but one of the things that I don't think we should um, undervalue is the fact that you've got some unique skills there, and that what you want to be doing is you want to be applying them in innovative and and uh, uh, I guess as as critical ways as you can. Um, what I what I don't like, um, or I don't spend a lot of time doing, is worrying about um, turf in terms of professional turf. You know who's doing what, who's who's not doing what. I, I sort of think, as a dietitian or as a qualified dietitian, as a profession, we should have confidence that you know the skills that we have um, are unique and um and they and and they're, they can be very useful i think one of the things that we need to do as a profession is is understand how to best use these skills and work on demonstrating how effective dietitians can be at either producing health outcomes creating health efficiencies um you know Providing benefits to our clients, to our employers, to our health services, whatever it might be, rather than worrying too much about who is or isn't cutting in on our turf, I think we should be sort of all, all um, being concerned with, with how busy we are. We need to be very focused on how do we apply the skills that we've got, the unique skills that we've got to add value to, to our customers, whether our customers are our, our employers or, or clients that we're seeing. Um, So to me, I think we're going to see a lot more of um, the use of technology, whether that's wearable technologies or or, um, adaptive technologies, Um, you know, so dietitians in terms of the way we do business, the way we analyze someone's food intake, for instance, I think that's going to completely change in the next 10 years. Diet histories will be completely out the window, I suspect, and and so it will be more an interpretive role and in looking at how or how do we translate the numbers that we're getting into advice to people, and how to best deliver that advice so that people aren't overwhelmed because there's a hell of a lot of nutrition noise out there. I'm not too worried about where that noise is coming from, just so long as the the noise that we're producing is ourselves is recognised and and demonstrated as being something that provides a you know a, an important Um, service to the clients that that you're seeing whether that be at the individual level or at a community level
0: yeah really excellent point ben i hear the technology argument come up a lot
1: yeah, look, it's only a matter of time before you know people are just taking photos and it's telling you how many
0: calories you've consumed, calories
1: yeah. or <laughs> grams of protein or whatever. Oh, I think the the challenge is, well, how do you how do you interpret that, and how does the average person interpret that, and how how does that translate into messages that people can, you know, I'm a I'm a huge uh, advocate for. Um, a sort of a line of health inquiry called uh, minimally disruptive care which is all about well how do we in, in, in an environment where you know uh, a, a, a patient in hospitals doctor will be saying one thing nurses will be saying something else diabetes educators will be giving them information pharmacists physios dietitians will all be giving people information and advice how do we communicate what is the most important advice to that individual as efficiently as possible to have the greatest impact on their overall health, and so this this idea of minimally disruptive care, so what is the least you need to do with this person to get the maximum return, uh, which is which is able to be done by that individual, is I, I think um, something that's going to become increasingly um, important.
0: Yeah, excellent point. So that kind of leads me to my last point, and I always really like to ask this because everyone's got a different opinion, but what do you think dietitians can do to stand out from the crowd? I think one
1: of the things that we haven't done well is clearly demonstrate how effective dietitians can be. I think um, a a key to our our future ongoing work is for us to be able to demonstrate our our long-term effectiveness, and that can be at an individual level or can be to the government um, or or your employer, um, rather than spending a lot of time um worrying about who's saying what in the nutrition space, um, demonstrating the effectiveness that dietitians have within that nutrition space to the people who really matter is is I think a, a you know key sort of future path forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for sharing that, Ben. I'm very sad to say that we are out of time, but I just want to thank you very much for sharing your inspiring and very interesting career with us and offering some really great advice. So thank you so much for being with us today.
1: It's no problem at all.
0: So we'll have a link to Ben's ResearchGate profile on the website for if anybody would like to read a little bit more about his research. I know I definitely will be. Also, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, could you please leave a review for us as well as pass this podcast on to your colleagues and friends. And also make sure that you are subscribed to the Dietitian Connection podcast so that you can automatically download the new episode each week and so that you don't miss out. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time for another fantastic episode of the Dietitian Connection podcast.